brand of conversation radio, we're dedicated to bringing you a program where talking really matters, offering topics to touch your mind, body, heart, and soul. Today we'll be talking about awakening your soul purpose, what ignites your soul, what blocks its path, what gives it joy. You'll hear about saging and mentoring for soul purpose. How do we define the soul, however? Well, one description comes from Dr. Almas's Diamond Heart Work, which I was part of for 10 years. It is said to be the totality of your living mindful awareness. Well, are we mindful? Are we aware? Those are two very important questions. Do we fool ourselves about our level of awareness? Well, I personally have found, for instance, that ideas and willpower can join together and feel like a substitute for soul purpose. But when your heart, mind, and body are in harmony, you have a much better condition for soul purpose to emerge. We know that no one's soul experience is the same as anyone else's, but there are moments that call to everyone's soul, like the feeling of falling into the glow of a baby's eyes, breathing into a glorious sunset, having your heart swell with the unconditional love of an adoring pet, or diving wholeheartedly into a moment of family closeness. I'm so pleased to introduce you to two outstanding guests joining the conversation today. Dr. Brenda Wade, who is a San Francisco-based psychologist, author, television host, and producer. The name of her newest book is Power Choices, Signposts on Your Journey to Wholeness, Love, Joy, and Peace. And you can get this book by going to her website, docwade.com. National audiences know her from her syndicated TV program, Can This Marriage Be Saved? And she currently hosts the Bay Area Community Fairs television show, Black Renaissance. She is best known for her love-centered approach to transformation. And we also have psychologist Dr. Jonathan Young. He's founder of the Center for Story and Symbol in Santa Barbara, and he and his partner, Ann Bach, offer continuing education seminars on the psychology of fairy tales, mythic stories, creativity, and more. He was the founding curator of the Joseph Campbell Archives and Library and worked for several years assisting Campbell. Jonathan created and chaired the Mythological Studies Department at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. His website is folkstory.com. So welcome to both of you. I'd like to start with you, Brenda, and ask you how you experience, teach, and talk about soul path and purpose. Oh, big question. It's it's a big (laughs) question, and I think my answer has to be really simple. Yes. For me, the most important thing is I know when I'm on purpose. When I'm on purpose, I feel a certain kind of calm. At the same time, I feel very energized and very alive. When I'm off purpose, there's a little bit of drag on the energy, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, I might even wake up feeling anxious or somehow feeling not quite centered. So I didn't know any of this, of course, when I started out. I remember being really off course in my life in my early years, only I didn't know anything about soul purpose. Well, that sounds pretty familiar (laughs) to more of us than just me in this room. Exactly. And I ended up, I remember I was doing, what was I doing in undergrad school? Well, mostly being depressed Mm. and sleeping through every day, but I would wake up and just feel unhappy. And then I had an opportunity to work with Virginia Satir. 
And I came alive in a way I never imagined I could. What an amazing teaching. Yes. But one thing about that business of being off course is I now look back and realize everything that I did while off course prepared me to do what I've been doing now that I'm on course. So nothing is lost. I really believe nothing that. is ever lost. And I think we do indeed learn by our mistakes. We love joy, but we don't learn a lot from joy. But we do learn if we're interested through our pain and our discovery and our learning and our teachers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Joan. Absolutely. And especially the teachers. I yes. know we'll, we'll touch more on that later, but the teaching part is really, really valuable. Yes, it is. And how would you just put the nutshell onto the sole purpose that we're trying to awaken here today. Well, listening to to Brenda's marvelous way of saying it, the the phrase that was on my mind is the ability to listen to the still, small voice Mm -hmm. within. And as a psychologist, I I am constantly trying to um, invite the people I'm working with to quiet themselves. We get so busy and we're so rushed and just listen to what's happening in our tissues, what's happening in our bones, because there's a kind of wisdom that will that will come forward if, if we can pay attention. And I, I do know that when I slow down and, and just ask myself, all right, what's my purpose here? What, what am I called to do? How does this fit in with my life story? What's right? What's the right thing to do? And I can also take some inventory. All right, where's my anxiety? Where will that pull me off track? Okay, I can honor that. I don't even need it to go away entirely. I can just not listen to it right now mm-hmm. and take a step in the direction that's going to make a contribution to what I need to do and what I can do for other people. So that's those are the words that come to mind. Well, these are in very informed words because as a psychologist, you know what questions to ask and you know you need a quiet space. And what I feel is abroad and in the clients that have come to me is that people need to be invited to come into quiet space because one of the things a busy person fears most is to stand still and reflect and be quiet. There's an anxiety that comes up because the nervous system is used to being on go. Yes, exactly. You know, one of the things, Joan, I thought of when you said that is that most people are busy striving. Yeah. You know, we are striving and striving. And what Jonathan was saying a moment ago about taking the quiet, we fear it because we think it will stop us from striving and succeeding. Or get too relaxed so we can't get going again. But on the other hand, what we found is that that quiet reflection is where some of the best ideas come from, where some of the most creative things that we actually produce in our lives come from. And if we're quiet, there's even a course at Stanford Business School on intuitive management, Mm -hmm. where they actually teach these would-be business managers how to meditate how to become quiet, because they find that managers who are centered actually connect better with other people. People will sometimes think, well, I I don't have time to do that. But what happens if you quiet yourself is time gets larger. Very much so. And in fact, this is sort of the quantum physics idea that comes into play here, quantum healing and quantum doing. We can actually speed up by slowing down. Oh, that's deep, Jane. (laughs) And also, I have to say, people need to understand that they should try softer and not try harder because that's where the striving comes in. And striving is such um, a hard emotion in the body. It doesn't leave much space for love or compassion or open space. 
Uh, now, know. creative people want to do a lot, want to make a contribution. I think another word that comes to mind is control. How much control do we really need to accomplish what we're called to do? Well, some, of course, but I don't think every last thought and feeling has to be accounted for. I think we can relax a little, that perhaps there's something like a current or a flow that's going to happen, and we don't have to do all the pushing. We're, <laughs> we're carried part of the time. Yeah. And, in fact, if you really think it through, we don't have control over anything if we really, really look at it. Well, there's a difference between control and mastery. Yeah. I always think about mastery being relaxing into something. Think about going down a ski slope, controlling it. <laughs> you know, you're, yeah, right. Good your knees luck. will be locked when, of course, the success of skiing down a slope is if your knees are relaxed or playing tennis. Sure. When you're clenched up. You just can't get to mastery by clenching and controlling. So when you, I hear you, Jonathan, talk about being carried, I think of any sport. If you're really in the mastery, you're in a flow, or the zone, as my kids would say. Exactly. And, in fact, people have written about the zone and the flow, and there is a feeling of complete relaxation and letting go and surrender. I yes. mean, the surrender part is such an interesting dynamic in the body. It's beyond relaxation if you want to really think about that for a minute. And if everybody in the audience would just sort of, Take a deep breath and surrender and mm -hmm. feel that that's different from just saying, I'm going to relax now. Right. It is deeper. It's much deeper. The thing that, that strikes me also is if we tie in the mind-body piece, you bet. that striving really excites the adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. So we're pumping norepinephrine through the blood, and we all know that in psychoneuroimmunology, the mind-body medical research, that depletes the immune system. It and depletes neurotransmitters. It shuts down all the vital function over time. So it's important to find a way to and relax or, better still, as you say, surrender. And these adrenal glands are just the size of walnuts. And if you're putting your entire striving onto those two organs in your body that are so small and have to do such a big job, it's not fair. No, <laughs> it's not okay. Fair. <laughs> I hadn't looked at it in quite that way, but I see your point. <laughs> I mean, when you think that your liver is such a big organ and it handles such a big job, but these adrenal glands really have to be taken care of for our, as you say, immunology and all kinds of the neurotransmitters that go through the body. So, as we close this segment, surrendering and waiting for what's coming next as well, I'd like to say that myth is the original self-help psychology, and we're going to talk about myth next and about storytelling and mythology to help us know how our soul can awaken to our soul purpose. And does your soul get stuck or have blocks about changing? Stay tuned for this fascinating conversation. Ready for more? Dr. Joan Kenley continues in a moment on 960 The Quake. Log on to joankenley.com, that's K-E-N-L-E-Y, to learn more and listen to archived shows. What's not to love about The Joan Kenley Show? where conversation truly matters on 960 The Quake. Hello, I'm Joan Kenley, welcoming you back to The Joan Kenley Show, where we're continuing our conversation about awakening your soul purpose. 
Thomas More said that storytelling is an excellent way of caring for the soul. And I'm so delighted to have with me in the studio today psychologist Dr. Jonathan Young, who is the founder of the Center for Story and Symbol. He and his partner, Ann Bach, offer continuing education seminars on the psychology of fairy tales, mythic stories, and creativity. And his most recent publication is Saga, Best New Writings on Mythology, which is available on Amazon. And Dr. Brenda Wade is a San Francisco-based psychologist, author, television host and producer, and her newest book is Power Choices, Signposts on Your Journey to Wholeness, Love, Joy, and Peace, available on DocWade.com, D-O-C-W-A-D-E.com. Dr. Blattner said, Storytelling is one of the more effective ways to develop a relationship with the soul. Soul doesn't think in terms of prose and facts, but rather images and stories. It's more right-brained, so to speak. So, Jonathan, could you tell us how you use storytelling, myth, and mythology in the soul work that you do? Well, I think it's of great value to have some idea what sort of story one is in. Uh, they're, they're not all the same. We have different callings and different journeys. And to fish around into favorite uh, tales uh, from childhood, favorite novels, favorite movies, whatever stories we have loved over the years, to see if there's a pattern, to see if we are drawn to one kind of story more often than others. That's often a clue. We see a mirror in that kind of... Just get a list of paper and write out 20, 30 titles of things we've liked. And right away it becomes evident in most cases that there are certain stories we're drawn to more often than others, and they're probably mirroring what our stories are. Then go read them again. Read them as dreams. Oh, my, that's a grand way to My mentor, at. Joseph Campbell, thought that these stories work just like dreams, that we would look at those images not just as the concrete words and pictures they represent, but as, as metaphor to see what symbolism might be there, what it mean, might mean more. So if you have a story that has a, has a basement in it, mm-hmm. that might represent uh, the unconscious or deeper parts of the self or some mystery or something like that. If you have a flower in it, it might represent blossoming or something coming forward. So to, to take that and, and come back to it again and again, it's kind of a meditative activity to revisit. And then once you get a sense of what sort of story is unfolding, the job is, the calling, uh, one's task is to do that well. This is very helpful in focusing our energies. We're bright people. There are many things we could do. We have friends. They tell us what they find interesting. Oh, well, should I go do that? This is very difficult to make the choices. It's not just once in life. It's not just that we make these choices in our 20s. We make them again and again and again. What to follow, which good ideas to do, and which to ignore. And knowing our story helps a great deal. Well, that's interesting because, for instance, I can remember a few, and I do remember that Rose White and Rose Red were one of my favorites, but do many people remember those toddler stories or or not? Because as a psychologist, a lot of my clients could not remember from age seven on back, you know, and I can remember from two or three. Right, uh, and I have very early memory as well. I don't think that's terribly important. I think the intensity is the important thing. If oh, you yeah. ha- feel very strongly about Casablanca or some favorite movie Oh, so it could be a movie too, not movie. just the... Um... It, it could be an actor. It could be a favorite poet. I was very, very fond of, of um, James Garner. 
Oh, yeah. Anything James Garner was in, and he's actually been in a lot of corny stuff and, and some very, very Both fine. End. Yeah. But he usually plays a certain character. He, he, it's a, well, in archetypal terms, it's a trickster. It's somebody that is sort of, Makes one impression and then does something else. He'll he'll pose as the hero and then he'll run out way when he gets the chance. Right, right, right. And I realized after reflecting over many years that he's essentially a, a Robin Hood character who does the right thing but by kind of mischievous methods. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, that's an interesting. That's, and that relates strongly to you. Well, now, <laughs> well I, in what I way? A, I do have a good sense of humor, and and, and I do think. That it, it's very involved in creativity. This, this kind of bringing a little mischief in is how you discover ways to do things that have not been tried before. Well, exactly so, yeah. my point. You're a groundbreaker where that comes in and you have that twinkle in your eye. So it isn't really mischievous. It's more like the twinkling idea that comes to you that's a little bit out of the box. So if somebody did like, say, Robin Hood in childhood, they wouldn't really have to remember it. All they would need to know is that, like the movies that this actor's in, very it, good. It, it's, it's enough of a clue. The story that calls me is the rebel story. Okay. And I call it my second child syndrome. Being the second of seven, there was a part of me that always wanted to distinguish myself from the rest and be seen in this, this kind of pack of children that we were. And as my mother said, you were just born to do these things you <laughs> do. Hmm, I have to think about that. But in any case, I think there's mischief and rebellion that carry us in new directions. I agree with you. There are things that we wouldn't do if we didn't have that kind of, hmm, maybe I'll step out of the box and try something. And that's a part of most people. Some people are very rule-bound. I find when I'm working with people who've been abused, Mm -hmm. they can be very rule-bound for fear of being punished. Of course. Fear of being rejected. But if you can start to step out of it, make a little mischief, and... In the storytelling, one of the things that I recommend that people do is write your story. Mm-hmm. Write the story and say, well, I didn't like the beginning of the story. How do I want the middle to be? How do I want the end of the story to be? What's the story that would mean the most to me? Because this, I find, is one way to really get in touch with the soul's journey because there is already a trajectory. We can already see the direction we're going. We can already kind of suss that out. But let me back up for a second because I just had this thought. Even for people who are struggling with something really painful, I spent a large part of my career working with drug addicts, people in prison, women who are battered, a lot of the quote-unquote underdog. Mm -hmm. And One of the ways that I found people began to feel more powerful is if they could look at their life as a story and say, I'm going to make some different choices. That's really why I wrote Power Choices, because the power to make a different choice, to be awake, and to turn my life in a different direction. That's so important, because we have to understand, I believe, that soul work is not about scratching the surface. We have to dive in somewhere. And we cannot tell a story unless we dig a little bit deeply into what's happening inside. And as you write, don't you find that you go deeper and deeper? You spiral down into a story you might not have expected when you first picked up your pen. You know, one of the things that I've been fortunate enough to do is to actually take classes from Jonathan Mm -hmm. and from Ann Bach. And in each one of the classes, there's a time when we're invited to write with Anne. Yes. And I cherish those moments because I usually don't write much about myself. When I'm writing, it's self-help and it's looking at how 
pieces fit together to help other people. But that writing, as you call it, Joan, spiraling down, takes me places of course. I would never have gone. And what I'm hearing is this opportunity to deepen your sense of the story that is unfolding, that yes. wants to unfold. I have this notion that we all have better angels. We all have an idealistic place in us. We may have been away from it for a while or not visited it lately. The writing or some kind of reflective activity that draws us down into our deeper places, closer to the journey that we value, is, is, is what it takes. Well, I find that people have to understand also that there is a resistance to going deeper. There is a resistance to change. So there is a resistance to finding the deeper nature of our soul just because we're built that way. We're built to stay in comfort. We're built to stay in pleasure. We don't want to find out what the pain points are on the spiral down sometimes, which is why writing probably helps because yes. you're doing something while the pain is emerging rather than just sitting exactly. and going into the pain. Well, you're talking about the old comfort zone. Right. You know, it's right. easy to stay in the comfort zone, even if I'm dissatisfied, I'm yes. not necessarily happy, I'm not necessarily on my soul journey, but gee, it's so familiar. I'll just sit here for a while. And that's why counseling or coaching or therapy or seminars really helps us break through that comfort zone to say, I can go there with safety and I can go there with consciousness because right. I am supported by the other people in you the know, room. For, for people who are afraid to go there, Joan, I really need to say that there are gifts that are unimaginable when you delve into the deeper part of yourself. There's there are the discoveries of what has blocked me. There's the discovery of what I've been afraid of. But there's also this kind of energetic release. It's like all of a sudden, instead of feeling that that's really hard to do and I don't right. know if I can do it, there's all this energy. And I find in my life, every time I go in, I do deep work and I clear a block in my own consciousness or some fear that I've held, that I didn't even know I was holding. Well, of course. I take off. My life takes off. Something but clears up But you see, this me. is the carrot that takes people into the seminars and into a therapist's office or into a conversation with someone they trust, is that there really is the hope that there is some reward for delving into the understanding of the soul, the soul purpose, the soul meaning. For instance, it can feel like rubber, you know, that's going to bounce back at you if you think that your resistance is too strong to weave through this other beautiful thing that's waiting at the end. It's a treasure chest. The resistance is good, too, though. Oh, well, that you couldn't serves, work if you didn't have that's resistance. That's right. It serves a purpose. and But we have to know that that's what it is. Exactly. And even if you don't, you know, sometimes I find that just giving people permission to resist oh, is you okay. Bet. Oh, yeah. Just to name it and claim it is a good idea, don't you think? Right. Now, being grown up, we want to, to, we want to know what we're doing and we want to seem to know what we're doing and, and we get better at that as we go along. What we're talking about, if we're listening to soul, is willingly going to a place where we're not that clear, where we're open to some mystery, something new. There's a phrase I love, what do I know that I don't know that I know? There you go. A little meditative koan that will maybe open to some idea I haven't thought of before. Mm -hmm. No, that's lovely. It's a lovely way to say it. Well, Brenda Wade has some tools in her book, Power Choices, some techniques about awakening the soul that you'll all find helpful and useful. And so keep listening. And we'll keep talking. More in a moment with Dr. Joan Kenley, psychologist and author of Whose Body Is It Anyway? Now bringing you Conversation Radio every Saturday at 5 here on 960 The Quake. 
You found it, and it's different. The Joan Kenley Show, Saturdays at 5, right here on 960 The Quake. Hello, I'm Joan Kenley. So glad you're back listening to The Joan Kenley Show, where we're continuing our conversation about awakening your soul purpose. And we have with us psychologist Dr. Jonathan Young. He's the founder of the Center for Story and Symbol, and he offers continuing education seminars. His most recent publication is Saga, Best New Writings on Mythology, and it's available on Amazon. And we have Dr. Brenda Wade, who is a San Francisco-based psychologist, author, television host, and producer. Her newest book is Power Choices, Signposts on Your Journey to Wholeness, Love, Joy, and Peace, available at DocWade.com, which is D-O-C-W-A-D-E. And Brenda, I just can't wait to ask you how your book, Power Choices, will tell the audience how the techniques and tools in this book can be helpful for people who want to awaken their soul journey. You know, Joan, I'm really practical. I know you are. Very, very practical. And I have a simple little quiz at the beginning of the book, which is called your growth quotient or power quotient. And with the questions in this quotient, you can analyze whether you're in balance physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Just looking at the score. Is the, the area you score the highest in physical, so that maybe you work out, you eat well, but you don't ever really stop and examine what you're feeling. You don't do any mental work to help yourself to grow, and there's no time for spiritual pursuit. Now, spiritual pursuit can be anything that you find energizing, that gives you a sense of awareness and awakening that's beyond everyday life. That could be taking a hike. Sure. It could be um, meditating, it could be going to church, temple, whatever it is, something that gives you that sense that I'm in touch with something beyond myself, something greater. So by taking the quiz, you can zone in or zero in on the area that needs work. And the quiz is so objective. Yes. Again, it takes the fear out of saying, okay, I can do this privately, and nobody will have to know what my answers are except Exactly. <laughs> but then I go on to give very simple, practical tools. If you're out of whack, so to speak, in the physical area, that's pretty easy to fix. But what about the emotional area? Mm-hmm. Another tool that I developed I call the emotional intensity scale. And I was talking to someone today who's having a really hard time in her marriage, and she was just on the emotional intensity scale, 10 being the highest, she's pretty darn close to a 10. And I said, you know, if you're at a 10 with your husband, it's not all about him. If you're five or higher, it means there's something here from the past that's been triggered. Now, what is he doing or saying that's triggering you? And then she could begin to move forward and stop blaming her husband and begin to see that he had done something that was pretty innocuous but it reminded her of a trauma with her father, and she went berserk. Of course she did. Of course she did. You understand I those do. things, Joe. But you see, the the real key here is that you have the tools to, in one-hour sessions, bring people to these ahas with your techniques that say, oh, this is what's happening with me. I can do something. Yeah. Well, the whole point of these tools, the power quotient quiz, the emotional intensity quiz, and the, the other tools, once you know where you are, is it takes us deeper. The core of this book, Power Choices, is that we are on a journey. If we can recognize where on the journey we happen to be, it's easier to work with it. 
if there's some trauma in your life or something that comes in unexpectedly. The big thing in the Bay Area here is a lot of people work in IT, and a lot of IT companies have been going up and down and up and down. So pink slips, pink slips are you know a pretty common thing. And if you walk in and you're pink slipped because they come out of the blue, you don't get any warning. No, you don't. You're pink slipped. You might say, "Oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me," or you could say, "This is a signpost best known as initiation. Something new is coming. One door closes, another door opens." And you have to realize that if you've lived a few years, and if you have the hindsight that's always twenty twenty, you know that a closing door can open you up to a great vision and a great vista. Right, exactly. And I find most people when they get their pink slip and. They deal with the shock and the trauma, and we get to the other side. They quickly go, "What a relief!" You know, I really didn't like working there anyway. <laughs> it's also true. And I was wondering, Jonathan, if in your book Saga: Best New Writings on Mythology, you have in there a collection of wonderful people, and do they tell stories about how the soul can work through their writings on mythology, and do those kind of go together? The people that I've gathered together are the generation after Joseph Campbell. People like Thomas More, who you quoted earlier, and Gene、uh, Shinoda Bolin, who you've had,、right. uh, you know, and and the、um, the best people that are telling us about understanding our stories. I was just thinking about. What Brenda was saying in her work and how comprehensive it is—that it's not one size fits all.、Oh. It's about wholeness. It's about figuring out at this stage of the journey which piece have I been neglecting, which piece do I need to pay attention to. You might be understandably proud of something you've just accomplished, but while you were doing that, you neglected something else, and it's time to swing around and do that now. And I think the stories, whether they are wisdom stories or, or a favorite movie, something that that we found some teaching value in. The sense of story and journey in our life helps us be aware of all the parts to take the comprehensive view of our lives. Almost everybody's neglecting something. Oh yes, in fact, Jean Bolin talks about the fact that the thing that brings her to her soul place is the beauty of her backyard and her home, and sipping a cup of coffee in the morning brings her right into that feeling of soul. Yeah. What I love about that example is it's so simple. I mean, sometimes when we start working on these things, it seems like, oh, I'm going to have to save up from and make a, a pilgrimage to Nepal or something.、Right. Not necessarily. Maybe、yes. you need a real simple moment of meditation,、exactly. or a pilgrimage to your backyard. Yes, which、indeed. some of us haven't seen in a while. Well, I think that's also true. I mean, when that old phrase "stop and smell the roses," "stop and smell the coffee," those are both simple phrases, but they mean a lot. Take that moment. Those moments are important because Joan, I I believe they add up to self-nurturing,、mm-hmm. and a lot of what stops us on our journey is that we don't believe we deserve to stop. Sure, I'm not worth taking the time, and to really embrace a soul journey, it works both ways. When we embrace the journey, we feel more worthy, but if we feel more worthy, we'll embrace. It can go <laughs>、right. both ways. So I I just encourage. People to think about. I'm worth taking care of. That's helped me a lot in my life because I used to be one of those, just, you know, riding hell for leather all the time. I never felt I deserved to stop because my mother's voice would come on in my head and go, 
What are you doing sitting there? Do you know how much work there is to do? <laughs> so much work. Yes. Yes, and I know that growing up that we were always supposed to be good girls and come in on time and follow the study hall plan for our studies. It was as if we had a regimented yes. youth. And when I got out of that box, which I had to get out of in order to be an actress, you had to really think in more creative ways than well, the homework is tonight and then tomorrow. Well, with an audition, you your never parents know if you're must going have had a fit. <laughs> well, yes, they did in in one way, but in another way, they let me go to community theater when I was only thirteen or fourteen, and I had wonderful mentoring there. And so my soul journey was allowed to happen, but it was within a miracle in the community that it happened. Many towns of eleven thousand do not have an extraordinary director of an extraordinary little theater. So there are miracles that happen to give us a path for our soul too. And soul's nourishment was always important to me from the time I was little. It was like I was hungry to be on a soul path. And I think that some people are brought to a soul path through books, movies, stories, help. But challenges and challenges, yeah. and other people just have this flame in their heart to be on purpose. And I always wanted to be somebody who was getting life right, and that was a detriment to me sometimes. Yes, <laughs> it really yes, was. But my story is not unusual for people in small towns that grew up during the years that I grew up. But we have the whole spectrum of stories, and I think that. When we know that movies are so popular today, it's so refreshing to find a movie that has something to say, mm. something that has a message rather than blow it up. And yeah, well, Hollywood finally woke up after what the bleep do we know? Oh yeah, and there's actually a phrase that's kind of bandied about in Hollywood called. Does that fit in the what the bleep niche? Because when it finished in the top ten movies of the year it was released, was that two years ago? When Something it was released, like that. Uh, it finished in the top ten, and all of Hollywood went, what? Mm -hmm. There are people out there who want this personal growth, spiritual stuff? Indeed, there <laughs> are people who want that. And so when you think of stories and people finding stories, and you've talked about movie and mythology and so on, what kind of mythology? Is it Greek mythology that you're talking about? Or what other well, kind of universal mythology? Right. Is it Jungian? Drawing very heavily on Carl Jung's work indeed. And it draws on the, the Greek and the Roman classic stories. But, but my earlier comment about how um, you might not remember the fairy tale from childhood, the stories repeat themselves. There are probably only, you know, a given number of possible plot variations. So we could go back to the ancient uh, Indian Vedas or something, or, or the Greeks, or, or we could pay attention to the fairy tales we have loved, or as parents passed along to children. And if we find ourselves drawn to certain stories, then we could, if we wanted to take the trouble, track back and find the ones they were probably based on that are much older than what we know. Or we could simply study what we have in hand because it's all there. It's all, everything you need to know, you, you learned in kindergarten, as somebody <laughs> yes. else said. That is, you learn from these old fairy tales. If you want to know about your fears, just study Hansel and Gretel. Study the, the story of, of, of a terrible uh, childhood that, that had all sorts of ordeals in it, uh, a dark forest journey that had terrible anxieties, uh, dangers to life itself that we somehow survived. And yet, at the end of the story, we're rich. 
and of course, not to get too literal about that, no. you can make a decent living and, and have some wealth and all that, but on a larger scale, to have a rich inner life, to have, to That's know it. yourself, and to have to have gotten through all that and not be at the end bitter about it, but in a way grateful, first of all, grateful that you've survived, and that you've learned quite a few things. And yes. It's a pretty darn good story. Well, I think self-gratitude is so important today because I do find that the ego voice, that said, the superego voice that says you didn't do it right, you right. weren't fast enough, you weren't big enough, you weren't tall enough, you weren't thin enough. Didn't do enough. That's it. That's probably, and I've said this on the show before, the worst disease in America right yeah. now is that super addiction ego to, to perfection. Right. Yeah. Remember that movie Goodwill Hunting? Oh, I love a, that a wonderful movie. therapist, you know. Oh, and great. and here we are with a difficult person who's wounded in his way and the therapist is saying, you know, all those things that happened to you, all that abuse and all the beatings and everything, it wasn't your fault. And the client says, I know. And he repeats it. He says, I know. And he repeats it. And he repeats it and repeats it until the guy's crying because all that time he did really think it was his fault. He did. And this is such an important message. So we're heading next into a great conversation about saging and mentoring for awakening your soul purpose. Keep listening. We'll keep talking. Invite your friends and family to listen to The Joan Kenley Show online or here on 960 The Quake every Saturday at 5. You're listening to Dr. Joan Kenley, psychologist and author of Whose Body Is It Anyway?, now bringing you Conversation Radio on 960 The Quake, every Saturday at 5. Hello, everyone. I'm Joan Kenley. So glad you're back with The Joan Kenley Show. We're talking about awakening your soul purpose, and we have wonderful guests with us, psychologist Dr. Jonathan Young, and you can find so much about him at his website, folkstory.com. And we have Dr. Brenda Wade, and you can find out so much about her at docwade.com, D-O-C-W-A-D-E. And everything about them will link up to our website, joankenley.com, K-E-N-L-E-Y. I've got a funny story to tell as we go into this segment about Googling a word that I wanted to use on this program. And I put in saging on the search engine to see what I might find. And I got one of those red messages at the top of the page that said, do you mean sagging? (laughs) No, I don't mean sagging. And we certainly don't want to put that spin on sages or mentors. A better way to say it is that a mentor or a sage is someone whose hindsight can become your foresight. And I'd also like to add that Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, co-author of Aging to Saging, said, people don't automatically become sages simply by living to a great age. They become wise by undertaking the inner work that leads in stages to expanded consciousness. I mean, that is so perfectly said. And it fits in with what's being said frequently today, that 60 is the new 40, and 50 is the new 30, and so on and so on. Well, that doesn't just mean what people 
are looking like or that they're looking younger, but that there is a different attitude from within as we're aging today. And Skip Backus, executive director of Omega Institute, describes agelessness as an openness toward change, an attitude of curiosity, a passion for health and vitality that imbues every stage of life. Being and feeling ageless implies that there is something you can continue to give back to society, your wisdom, your experience, your love. And there is always new meaning to be found, risks to be taken, and a hopeful vision to be awakened even in difficult times. Living agelessly is the knowing that as we change, something deep within remains the same. So, Brenda and Jonathan, I'd like to open a conversation with you about how mentoring and saging is a doorway for people to awaken their soul purpose. I think this segment of the program should be only for those people who are, in fact, aging. Okay. <laughs> Which is everyone on the planet. <laughs> you know, it, it made me think, of course, immediately about mentors that I've had in my life and how lucky I was to have those people. Oh, yes. It just... I can't imagine where I'd be or who I'd be without mentors. And it's it's a funny business because I can remember resisting teaching, having anybody really teach me. There was a part of me that was hungry and curious and a part of me that didn't want to jump into deeper work. You know, there was this kind of pull. So I, I was just thinking, I remember being very, very, very depressed just as I was wrapping up grad school and I found a spiritual mentor who told me to go to the Unity Church. Darned if I was going to go to church. I was so not going to go to church. And I thought, well, uh, I felt a little bit better. Then I slipped into my depression again. And once again, I called this friend. She'd become a friend. And she said, oh, why don't you go to the Unity Church? And I said, I'm just not going to go. So I was out one day jogging. And I looked up. I just went down a street. I'd never gone down. There was the Unity Church. <laughs> Didn't even know where it was. Speaking but I, to you. Yes. Yeah, so I jogged right in in my sweaty clothes and sat down and met a woman who became a mentor of mine. That's beautiful. Yeah. It just really changed the course of my life. How many mentors do you think you've had in your life? You know, I believe I've had six. Six that really, mentor. really took me new places. And I studied... Very, very, very intensively. Because once I got into it, there's nothing that could keep me out of it now. Of course not. Because the value is there. You know, I, somebody told me a story recently uh, about mentoring and why we resist. It was some person who went to a guru and said, do we need gurus? And the guru said, no, you don't need gurus. But if your car breaks down, who do you call? If your roof leaks, who do you call? <laughs> if your plumbing breaks, who do you call? The most important part of ourselves, our inner life, we think we should handle all by ourselves. Mentor, the word, comes from the Odyssey. Odysseus was off wandering around and his son was back home growing up without a father. So he asked a family friend to look in on him. This character was named Mentor. And he slacked off after a while and the goddess Athena thought this was important because this boy was someday going to be a king. So she manifested herself as Mentor and made extra visits. Which is to suggest that our teachers are not only 
giving us their own advice, but perhaps representing something larger than themselves in this marvelous moment of mentoring as we go along. I totally believe in that. I think there's some kind of oversoul energy that comes into the mentoring room or the mentoring conversation, and it's as if a third presence comes in. It's as if the mentor... It does become larger than life just for you. And your mentor could be younger than you are or older. A 15-year-old could be mentoring someone who's five in a certain way of how to play in the sandbox or something like that. But I think we have to look at not as an aging thing, but saging goes on throughout our life. If we can just help somebody else do something, and you had mentioned peer helping as we were talking, and I think... As peers, we are mentoring each other all the time yes. with what we do and how we do it. And uh, the stories that come from mythology, I think, have to come into our society today and our culture today. We need our heritage. We need our stories. And we need to imagine ourselves from the right side of our brain as well as from the left side. Yeah, one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing Joan, and it's also a big feature in all the books I've written, is this looking at the intergenerational patterns. You bet. Because if we don't understand our own story, our own beginning, the Native Americans sometimes call it the burden bundle. Mm -hmm. And on the one side we have a burden bundle, on the other we have the blessing bundle. And in the burden bundle are all of the things that came from the generations before that didn't get completed. So, for example... Um, because I'm African-American, one of the things that I really needed to do was to go back and look at the experience of slavery for the African people who were brought here in order to understand a lot of my own feelings, my own psychology, the way that I was sometimes afraid to do things or didn't feel comfortable doing things. And I found a lot of clues by knowing not just my story, but the story of those who came before me. Brenda, what you remind me of is how the old stories are not only things we get from collective culture, but from family. That we will hear stories of our grandparents and great-grandparents, and sometimes the immigrant stories have uh, some tale of terrible hardship and oppression and persecution. And that families have gotten through such things, and there has been such courage and such initiative over the generations. And then, here is our life. Here is our story. Can we do something? Well, perhaps not equally epic, but equally challenging, that it will call as much from us uh, to do what is needed in our lives as what our great-grandparents had to deal with. I also think that we have to look at mentoring as something that doesn't need a grand journey to take on. Yes. For instance, what age do you become an elder and you have to be asked in this society or any society, I believe, to be an elder? And... Our uh, elder in our women's circle is at least 17 years older than the rest of us, and she calls herself an ancestor in the making, which I think is a Celtic phrase, and it's so wonderful. And her name is Ann Dozier, and we love her. So I think it's an internal soul question to find out where you feel you are in the saging eldering, mentoring moment rather than in the mentoring years. In other words, today I might feel like a mentor. Tomorrow I may feel like a child. Tomorrow I may feel like the one who needs to know. And you can also, just to flip what you're saying, today a child could be a mentor. Exactly. You know, I've learned a lot from my children. I think some of the richest lessons I've learned on my journey were 
the indirect lessons from my children of learning more patience, learning what unconditional love is really all about. But also, they say some pretty wise things and Always. and call us back to ourselves. I love that part of being a parent. I yes. think it is so important. You know, there's a saying, something about when the seeker is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. You can look at that the other way around. When a seeker appears, the teacher becomes a teacher. That is, you find out you can mentor when somebody really needs some help. You find out you know some things that you really aren't aware of, that you've accumulated through life's experience, and I think that's a magic moment. Very magic moment, and so important to remember, because we have to say that the journey towards soul purpose is a very important one, and we can take it up any day of the week, any hour of the day that we choose. And especially if people would like to re-listen to this wonderful show, just go to joankenley.com, and they can download it or listen on their computer worldwide and rehear some of the wonderful things we've been able to say in the studio today. And Joseph Campbell, one of your mentors, Jonathan, said, I don't believe people are looking for the meaning of life as much as they are looking for the experience of being alive. 